Good morning. My name is uh, Rich Henderson. I'm the director of Love, Inc., I Love in the Name of Christ, of Santa Clara County, and I'm a member here of uh, Neighborhood Bible Church. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, what's with the eye patch, right? It's, uh, it's only, what, uh, October 5th, a little early for Halloween, so what's, uh, what's going on? Monday, I had cataract surgery, and Tuesday, I had a repeat surgery. Uh, my ophthalmologist has been in practice for 45 years. He said the first time he's ever seen this, the uh, artificial lens that they put in popped partway out of the capsule, and so they had to go back in Tuesday and do another surgery to pop it back in. The eye patch is just because it's easier for me to just look out of one eye instead of having this blurry uh, thing in the other eye, and I figure it'd be pleasant for you not to have to look at me squinting or uh, with my red, ugly eye here. And I also thought, you know, it'd just be fun to preach like a pirate sometime, right? You know? <laughs> I gotta be guy. We're gonna plunder you with a second offering this morning. <laughs> so, that's what that's about. Brief word of introduction about uh, Love, Inc. before I get to the main topic of my uh, message today. So, Inc. stands for In the Name of Christ. And a Love, Inc. forms when uh, churches in a community decide they want to work together to help people in need. And that happened here in Santa Clara County uh, 25 years ago when Love in the Name of Christ uh, started. Santa Clara is part of one of 150 Love, Inc. affiliates around the country. And uh, just recently, there's a Love, Inc. now in Nairobi, Kenya. So it's gone international. So it's pretty exciting. Yeah, amen. Um, we run a telephone clearinghouse that connects people in need with volunteers from uh, Christian churches that are near them that are willing to help them. The talent survey that's in your bulletin gives you an idea of the kind of needs that we have requests for. Now, here's the deal. If Napoleon Dynamite could discover his skills, okay, you've got skills, and God wants to use those to help people in need, and this is how we know what they are, through the uh, talent survey or the online version of it. When uh, a need comes into the Love, Inc. office, we verify the need to make sure it's legitimate. We verify the need to make sure it's legitimate, and then we look for a volunteer using those talent surveys uh, from the nearest loving church to meet the need. Kat Atkinson will be speaking in a few moments. She's our contact person uh, at Neighborhood Bible Church for Love, Inc., so she's the one that gets the needs, and then using those talent surveys, she finds volunteers to, to meet the needs. Uh, all of our services are rendered free of charge as a tangible expression of the love of Jesus to the person in need. And over the last quarter of a century, thousands of needs of people in Santa Clara County have been met by a call to the Love, Inc. office. So if you're familiar with the, uh, the three purposes of Neighborhood Bible Church and the green uh, arrow, we are the share component of that green arrow of uh, worship, community, share. Love, Inc. is part of that uh, share component. Uh, one of the ways I like to explain what we do is that uh, we provide uh, churches service opportunities with training wheels on, right? Because if somebody in church says, hey, I can paint a room, what we can do is we connect, connect you with a, a disabled person that needs their room painted. If you can uh, give a ride, we can connect you to a, a senior who no longer drives who needs a ride for groceries. Uh, we are, Love, Inc. is the bridge between local churches and people in need. Neighborhood Bible Church is not an a old church. We're only, what, seven, eight years old or so, but we have a long history of service uh, to people in need through Love, Inc. If you have helped a Love, Inc. client before, would you just stand up right now? Go ahead and stand up. All right. 
So during the welcome lunch, you want to talk to these people, and you want to hear their story. How did it go? And, and get some details. So you can go ahead and have a seat. I know that Dave's not here today, but he may listen to this podcast. So I just want to uh, say I, I certainly appreciate Dave and all the support that he's given to Love, Inc. He's part of our pastor advisory team, a group of pastors that meets uh, twice a year to uh, be a sounding board for me as the Love, Inc. director. Also, Dave has been very generous with his time to meet with me one-on-one and give me a pastor's perspective on things. So I've uh, been a great support. And there's another uh, very special person that I want to acknowledge today. That's uh, Kel Cummins. Kel, would you stand up, please? I hate to embarrass you like this, but uh, Kel is not only an elder here at Neighborhood Bible Church, but for the last six years, uh, Kel has been on the board of Love, Inc. And the, the job of the board is to discern God's will for the organization. And so Kel has been a part of that, discerning God, what do you want us to do? And uh, he has kept us true to, uh, to our mission uh, been a great source for me of personal encouragement and godly wisdom. So, Cal, I just want to tell you publicly how much I appreciate you do with uh, what you do with Love, Inc. All right. I want to spend the bulk of our time this morning answering this question. If you've got the, a bulletin on the inside, you'll find this written out. And it's the idea of what would a benevolence work that is distinctively Christian and clearly beneficial uh, look like? So I want to cover those two things for a second. First of all, distinctively Christian. Um, in other words, what would a ministry look like that adheres to what the Bible says we ought to do to help people in need? You know, if the only difference between a, uh, a Christian food pantry and a secular food pantry is that the Christian food pantry has a gospel track stuffed inside the bag of groceries, something's wrong. Right? There ought to be a bigger difference than that. Um, if, if that's all we're doing, we're missing the mark. And the second thing is a, a, a clearly beneficial ministry. Uh, you ever participated in some kind of benevolence effort, whether it's giving money to something or working uh, as a volunteer for something? And at the end of the day, when all is said and done, you kind of say, did that do any good? I mean, did that really make any difference? Um, was the person in need helped in any significant way, were they brought any closer to Christ? Uh, how about me? Did I become any more like Jesus as a result of uh, doing that uh, uh, effort? Uh, what we're after is a benevolence effort that is clearly bene- beneficial uh, to both yourself and the person in need, where the answer to all those questions would be an unequivocal yes. Yes, it did do a lot of good. All right? I want to share with you four principles um, that outline the defining difference of Christian benevolence. I'm indebted to another Love, Inc. director, a woman by the name of uh, Lois Tupi, for providing the uh, seed thoughts for this message. And I believe that by applying these principles, our church can have a ministry to people in need that is distinctively Christian and clearly beneficial. So here's the first principle. It's in your bulletin there, and it goes like this. Because people in need are created in God's image, it is worth an investment of your time to establish a redemptive relationship with them. So we're going to start uh, with this right at the very beginning. Genesis chapter 1, uh, verse 27. And this says this, And God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. Okay? Um, The Bible teaches that all human life is sacred because humans bear the image of their creator. 
human life is valuable uh, because we're image bearers of God, and that value is intrinsic to the person. In other words, it's there on its own. It doesn't have to be earned. You don't have to do anything to be valuable to God. You're valuable because God created you in his image. Um, Very different than what the world says, right? The world says you're valuable if you contribute somehow to society. Uh, um, If you're talented or intelligent or rich or famous or beautiful or athletic or hold hold a position of rank or authority, then you're valuable. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that uh, we're valuable because God created us with uh, with value. The sacredness of human life based on our creation in the image of God has motivated Christians for 2,000 years to do benevolence work, to do things like uh, adopt uh, children, uh, start orphanages, uh, build the first hospitals, care for the sick, stand against injustice uh, done to the poor, and fight to protect the unborn and the aged. It really is perhaps the noblest legacy of our Christian faith is 2,000 years of benevolence work because people are intrinsically valued to God, valuable to God. They were created in his image. Um, it's also actually one reason why Christianity has been successful um, historically among the bottom levels of society. You know, those that society tends to say, you have no value. Christianity says, no, you have great value. Uh, You're so loved that Jesus went to the cross and died for you. The second part of this principle says that we need to establish a redemptive relationship with people in need. So why redemptive? Uh, Because we need to be redeemed, right? Our sin has caused a barrier between us and God. And that barrier can only be removed by faith in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Jesus paid the penalty we deserve by his death on the cross for our sin. And that gracious gift needs to be personally accepted for us to be reconciled with with God. I bring that up because there's a great danger in Christian benevolence of leaving out salvation. Uh, Just yesterday, I I listened to a a podcast, a webinar actually, about uh, a mission drift. And it talked about two organizations that started off with salvation right in the front and center, and that over the years have drifted from it. One is the YMCA, Young Men's Christian Association. I don't know if you knew that's what the C used to stand for. Uh, And the other is a a group called, uh, it's now called Child Fund International. used to be called the uh, Christian Children's Fund. And over the years, both those organizations have just focused on the physical needs and have moved away from the need for salvation and, uh, and left that behind. So there's a great uh, temptation in doing Christian benevolence work to forget about salvation and just focus on the, on the physical need. Um, Jesus, people need to be reconciled to God in order to live the abundant life that Jesus desires. Uh, let me give you an, an example of this. Um, in John chapter 6, uh, we hear the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. It's actually 5,000 men, so perhaps 20,000 people or so. And then as you read on, uh, you read what happens the next day. You know what happens the next day? The people came back for seconds, right? They said, hey, that was great being fed yesterday. We'd like you to feed us again. And they try and manipulate Jesus to give them another free meal. Jesus refused to do so. 
he tells them not to work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, namely to believe in him. He goes on to talk about himself as the bread of life that truly satisfied. Now, here's the thing. Jesus had the ability to grant their request and provide them with bread again, right? I mean, if he, God in the flesh, you can do that. In fact, he could provide every meal they ever needed for the rest of their life, right? He has that kind of power. But he refused to do so. Um, so Jesus, who could have met all their physical needs, refused to give them even a second free lunch. This was not cruelty or stinginess or hard-heartedness, but love and compassion because salvation was their deepest need. And that's what Jesus kept driving them to, their need for salvation. Uh, the last thing I want to emphasize regarding this principle is, is, is that it is worth an investment of your time to establish a redemptive relationship with people in need. Um, sometimes at the Love, Inc. office, we get these kind of calls from churches. Uh, they go like this. Our church is planning a service event, and we would like Love, Inc. to supply us with a person in need that we can do service projects for. We have a group of 20 people, and we don't want to be split up. We want to start Saturday morning at 10 o'clock, and we need to end by noon because we need to get back to the church for a picnic lunch at 1230. Uh, we want the work we do to have a significant impact on the person's life, hopefully something that is visually impressive that we can take before and after pictures of. Oh, and by the way, we would like to take a picture of everyone in our group standing with the person in need to go with an article we're writing about our workday for our church newsletter, What Do You Have For Us? Now, that may be a little bit of an exaggeration, but not much. I mean, we, we get calls similar to that. So what's behind this? Uh, really, what's behind this is we want to do something impressive so we feel good about ourselves. Is that likely to bring about life transformation? Nope. Life transformation happens in the context of relationships. That's the way it always works. That's the way it works with us and the Lord, right? The way the Lord transforms us is through our relationship. As we have time alone with him, as we read his word, as we worship, as we fellowship with other Christians, he teaches us, he transforms us. You think about the Christians that have a transformative effect on your life. They're people that you had a relationship with. Uh, Paul describes his relationship with the Thessalonians like this. If you've got a Bible, you can turn here. First uh, Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 7 through 13. First Thessalonians. Chapter 2, verses uh, 7 through 13. And listen to Paul's uh, relational connection with this uh, church in Thessalonica. Verse Thessalonians 2, 7. But we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having thus a fond affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behaved uh, towards you believers, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So Paul says, we had this relationship. We're like a father. We're like a mother. You saw us. We 
live this example and then look at verse 13. And for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you receive uh, from us the word of God's message, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. The result of that relational connection is they believed God's word was God's word, and their lives were transformed. Um, If we desire to see transformation in our lives and in the lives of people that uh, need help, we're going to have to uh, invest relationally in them. Service opportunities gives Christians a bridge to build a relationship and be an influence for Jesus in the life of people in need. Here's the uh, second defining difference principle. It's this, to discern the work God is doing in in their life and yours, then cooperate. Um, One of the most impactful books that I've read other than the Bible is a little Bible study by a guy named Henry Blackaby called Experiencing God. And uh, Henry Blackaby... uh, Uh, put it this way. He said, find out what God is doing, then join him. Find out what God is doing, and then join him. The idea God is working all the time. He's active all around us. Find out what he's doing, and join him. Uh, If principle number one is true, and every person has value because they were created in God's image, then we can make the assumption that God is seeking to work in the life of the person that you have the privilege of serving. This is uh, 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2, verse 4. It says, God desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. So God wants the person that you're serving to come to a knowledge of the truth and to be saved. So we pray and we ask, Father, what are you doing in this person's life? What are you seeking to teach them? And how can I cooperate? And then we watch and we wait for the answer. I'll tell you how I think churches tend to miss the boat here. Uh, I think it happens by rushing in and rescuing people from the consequences of their poor decisions. Uh, A person comes to a church in a a state of crisis, for instance, they say, I'm going to be evicted if I don't pay my rent this afternoon. And they come to a church with that need. And um, uh, the church gets wrapped up in the crisis. They feel they don't have any time to ask questions, and so they they don't ask any questions. They jump right in, and they bail them out of their uh, crisis. And let me tell you, I'm an adult child of an alcoholic. I am very aware of that tendency myself to be a rescuer, jump right into the crisis and rescue a person. Uh, Might God be trying to teach them something by letting them experience the natural consequences of their poor decisions? And if so, might, might we be working counter to the purposes of God by rescuing them from the consequences of their poor decisions? Uh, Let me give you a personal example of this from the Henderson household. This one's fresh. This just happened the last two weeks. Uh, Nancy and I have been, uh, for years, trying to get our our 18-year-old son, Daniel, to take out the trash on his own. Okay? He does take out the trash, but not on his own. It's, Daniel, did you take out the trash? Daniel, did you bring the trash in? So... um, We've talked to him about this. I'd like you to just take this over so it's not on my shoulders. You just do it, okay? And uh, so a couple weeks ago, it was on a uh, Wednesday night, and the trash had not been taken out. And I said, Daniel, if you don't take out the trash, there's going to be a big consequence. You know what you said to me? I learn from consequences. (laughs) I thought, wow, that's a way to throw down the gauntlet to your parents, right? I learn from consequences. 
So I said, well, okay, we'll give you a wonderful learning opportunity here. So uh, that night went by. The trash did not go out that week. And uh, the next day, Nancy and I set Daniel down, and I said, there's two things that I think uh, need to be addressed. One is, I don't think you think it's important to take out the trash. I think you, you think we're asking you to, like, dig a hole in the backyard every week and then fill it back up with dirt, that the job itself doesn't have any meaning. So I want you to know that this does have meaning. So what I'm going to do is, from time to time this coming week, I'm going to put things in the trash can in your room that will let you know how important it is to take the trash out. <laughs> so I start off nice, and I start off with a full bottle of very fragrant body lotion, okay, that I dumped in this trash can. And the next morning, found him sleeping on the couch in the living room. Apparently, it was hard to breathe with all that fragrance in the room. And later on in the week, I get a little, uh, a little more severe and uh, put a raw onion in the trash can in his room. And he took it out the next day, okay? The, the other thing I said is, I think you get the idea that it's unfair for us to ask you to do something that's going to benefit the whole family. Because taking out the trash is a benefit to all of us. And somehow you think it's unfair that you should have to do that. So what we're going to do is we're going to show you what that's like if people in a household don't do things that benefit everybody in the household. So, for instance, your mom goes to the store and buys groceries and cooks food for the whole family. And she uses you know, the money that I make to do that. So for the next week, uh, you're going to use your own money to buy your own groceries and cook them yourself. And you will not have our food available to you. I said, the other thing is, uh, you know, Dad bought the car that you're driving to high school, and I insure it, I maintain it, uh, I put gas in it. You will not have the privilege of using that car, okay? Uh, let's see, it was a Wednesday of this week that that uh, ran its course. Wednesday afternoon, he got home from school. As soon as he got home, went and he took the trash out and put it out Wednesday afternoon. <laughs> So uh, it's true. He learns from consequences, you know. Um, now, here's the deal. Um, if, if we learn from consequences and if our children learn from consequences, why do we think that we need to spare other people from consequences, right? Uh, listen to this. This is from uh, Hebrews chapter 12, uh, verses 9 through 11. Hebrews 12. 9 through 11. I'm sorry, Hebrews 12, uh, 5 through 11. And if I could get a volunteer, it's just hard for me to read this close up. So if somebody would be willing to read Hebrews uh, 12, uh, 5 through 11 for me. Cat, okay. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, not, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciples, disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? 
for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Great. Thank you, Kai. Um, a couple things to note there on verse 11. It says, uh, for the moment, all discipline seems not to be, uh, my translation says, not to be joyful but sorrowful. That's all the way around, folks. That's for the person suffering the discipline, uh, experiencing it, but it's for the one administering the discipline too, right? Uh, you know, at, at times we get calls in the Lovink office of uh, people asking uh, for that emergency help with rent, that they're going to be evicted in the, in the afternoon and if we don't pay their rent, and, and we just don't do that. We have a process that we uh, go through. We take people through a budget mentoring program and, and uh, have them save money, and then we uh, match their rent that way. So that's the way we do it. And so we've had to tell people, I'm sorry, we don't do that. And uh, it's not fun to have people question your Christianity, right? You call yourself a Christian, and you won't pay my rent. All right? So it's not fun to administer discipline or to experience discipline. Uh, another thing to note, it says in verse uh, 11, uh, yet to those who have been trained by it. Uh, the idea there is some have not yet learned, right? Some have not yet been trained by it. I know from personal experience, I've had to learn lessons multiple times from God, right? You'd think I would have got it the first time. Nope, got to go through it several times. And finally, the end result that God desires is the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So when helping in, uh, people in need, we must, we must wait on God for discernment. Without discernment, we're practicing what Christians in earlier generations called promiscuous charity. Isn't that a good term? Promiscuous charity. It might make the giver feel good, but it ultimately uh, leaves the recipient worse off. How about that? They're worse off because you help them. Uh, the third uh, defining difference principle is this, to focus on the person, not their need. And the idea here is that focusing on the person is more important than meeting their expressed need. And folks, that is very hard to do. Uh, why? Well, uh, sometimes people want you to focus on their need, and they don't want you to focus on them as a person. Right? The, uh, the man at the intersection holding the homeless vet sign wants you to focus on his need. Why? Because he wants you to give him money. Uh, secondly, it's just easier to focus on the need and meet the need rather to focus on the person. Focusing on the person will take an investment of our time. It's a much more costly, much more time-consuming. I want to show you a verse that points out this need, to focus on the, the person and not their need. It's found in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14. 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5, verse 14. Paul says, And we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all men. So he lists at least three different kinds of people here, and their needs are different. Right? He talks about the uh, unruly, the faint-hearted, and the weak. And each one has a different remedy. The unruly need to be admonished. Uh, the 
faint-hearted need to be encouraged. Now, what would happen if you flipped that around and you admonished the faint-hearted and encouraged the unruly, right? That wouldn't be good, right? The unruly would be encouraged to continue to be unruly, and the faint-hearted would just be wiped out by your admonishment, all right? So just like a doctor has to listen to the patient to make the diagnosis correctly, you need to listen to people and focus on the person in order to know how to correctly meet their need. Uh, if you focus on the person, you'll know how to appropriately uh, meet their need. I want to tell you how God showed me this, a big aha moment in my life. I'm going to ask my friend Kat to come up here uh, for this part. So uh, about 2009 or so, Kat called uh, the Love, Inc. office uh, asking for help to trim the bushes and take care of the uh, weeds and that kind of thing in her uh, uh, lawn, in her yard. And uh, I, I heard of this, and I thought, I, I found out from our paperwork she, she lives in a mobile home park. Easy, right? Mobile home park, little tiny patch, that's not going to be hard. So I said, I'll do it. She lives in the biggest mobile home park <laughs> yard you've ever seen in your life. It's like twice as big as a normal yard, okay? So I went over there, and I okay, this is going to be a little more than I uh, planned for. And so I, uh, I got the members of the community group that I was involved in at the time that met at John and Carol Thomas's house. Uh, I floated the idea, how about if we do this together? And they said, yeah, let's do it together. So on a summer evening, about four families from that community group, uh, adults and kids, went over to Kat's house and cleaned up her shrubbery and got things up to uh, standards for the mobile home park. And I was, I was uh, working there. I had taken the recycling bin to the curb, and I was coming back, uh, the yard waste bin, God just opened my eyes to something, that here were all these caring Christians, really sincere Christians, doing all this work, and here was Cat sitting alone on the porch. And God put on my heart, you know, Rich, the casual observer would think that's what, what is really important to Christians is shrubbery, <laughs> not people, right? And I took that to heart. And uh, Kat and I, basically, the short end of that story is over the last five years, we've become friends. Uh, not just personal friends, but family friends. She's a friend of our entire family. So I'd like you to hear a little bit from her uh, about what, that, what happened in her life. So Kat, you went from a spot of Calling Love, Inc. At that point, you were disconnected from a church. Mm -hmm. And so now you're here, part of a neighborhood Bible church. And not only that, you're our Love, Inc. contact person. And not only that, Kat told me she invited 14 people to come to Neighborhood Bible Church this morning. So something changed. So what, what changed? Um, in 2009, when I originally called to love in the name of Christ, um, and I apologize in advance because I get weepy, um, I thought, you know, this is just um, something that probably nobody's going to be out there to help. Um, because I was looking for help, and I, there wasn't any help. And I didn't have the money in order to get my yard work done. Um, I have the biggest yard in the mobile home park where we live. Um, and it took, um, a few months ago, 10 people, 10 hours, in order to trim my bushes and my yard. And it was amazing. But they come out usually now every six, seven months, because I'm disabled. I can't do it. I wish I could, but I can't. I now am uh, helping and uh, connecting people like you um, with needs 
various kinds. And I'm also the senior peer advocate for the senior center where I volunteer. Got two people standing by with uh, <laughs> handkerchiefs, just in case here. Um, and some of those people actually are going to be coming today for second service um, who have not connected with the church for a while. And so I've told them um, about the family atmosphere here at Neighborhood Bible Church. And I was looking for this back in 2009. And now I've come here since October 2009. And the Hendersons and Ben and Dave and a lot of others um, have made me feel very welcome. A lot of you have families. I don't have a family except for that here at Neighborhood Bible Church. So I welcome coming here every Sunday and seeing you. And thank you all for participating. And when I call with various needs, everybody's always been very helpful. Um, and most of the needs aren't mine. Most of those are for other people. And I appreciate everything that everybody's doing. So today is Love in the Name of Christ Sunday. Um, and I hope to see everybody filling out their talent surveys. And if you need to get it online, Ben and I will help you get it online. All right. Can we give kind of hand? That took a lot of guts. So I got a question for you. Why wouldn't we want that to happen to everybody that gets helped through Love, Inc. at Neighborhood Bible Church, right? I mean, that's what we want to happen to everybody. Um, so focus on the person, uh, not their need. So that brings me to my last uh, defining difference principle I want to share with you, and it's refuse to believe that God hasn't given them more potential by requiring the able-bodied to lift their end of the couch. Years and years of living in need takes its toll on people and lives the, leaves them feeling defeated. Uh, just imagine, dads, if every year for the last five years, you couldn't afford to buy Christmas presents for your kids. And so your kids' Christmas presents had to be provided for by a charitable organization. All right? Imagine that at once you were healthy and self-sufficient, but now you're disabled, and the things that you used to be able to do for yourself, you can't do for yourself anymore. I got just a small taste of that this week after this cataract surgery of not being able to drive and having to ask a neighbor to drive me to a doctor's appointment and my wife. Um, but imagine that going on for years. Um, how we treat people in need, get this, will either further devalue them or will begin to bring hope. How you, as a Christian, treat a person in need will either further devalue them or will it, it will begin to build hope. We can counter people's negative self-image by affirming their potential and requiring them to live up to that potential. If we sincerely believe that God has given people potential, we ought to require it from people, right? It demeans people's dignity not to require their participation to solve their problem. Uh, the Apostle Paul was pretty clear on this. Listen to the, uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses uh, 10 through 15. 2 Thessalonians 3, 10 through 15. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order, if anyone will not work, neither let him eat. How about that? <laughs> if you won't, Paul says, if you won't work, you're not going to eat. 
So the answer for the Christian food pantry is certain people shouldn't get any food, right? That's what makes you different than a secular food pantry. If they're not working and they won't work, don't feed them. For you hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. And if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that man and do not associate with him, so that he may be put to shame. And yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. According to Paul, those who refuse to work should suffer the consequences of their idleness. To do otherwise, to feed them, would be destructive for them, right? So I need a, I need a big burly guy to help me out here. Any, any, uh, any big burly guys? I see one right here in the front row. Okay, big burly guy. All right. So let's say this is my couch. It is not. I stole it from the church uh, office earlier this morning. But let's say this is my couch. And Ben, I ask you, hey, Ben, will you come over to my house and uh, help me move a couch? And you're kind enough to say yes. And so you're here. And so you come over to my house. And I say, here's the couch, Ben. Where's the other volunteer that's going to help move it? (laughs) And Ben, and Ben... (laughs) And Ben's correct reply is, I'm looking at him, right? <laughs> it's your couch. It's, you're the one that needs it moved. You ask me for help. I understand you can't lift the whole couch by yourself, but get on the other end of the couch and let's move the couch, okay? Yeah. So that's what Ben would expect. Now, you can, you can have a seat. I, will, I won't make you move the couch. You can sit in the There you go. Sit in the couch. <laughs> now, here's, here's the, uh, let me switch it up a little bit. When I went for my uh, surgery, one of the things they said as a follow-up is you cannot lift for a month anything higher, anything uh, more than 20 pounds. And the risk is that if you do that, the hole that the surgeon made in my eye would open up and the fluid inside of my eye would pour out. (laughs) Pretty gross, pretty disgusting, huh? Okay? So now, given that situation, totally appropriate for me to ask Ben, can you find another volunteer to move the couch, right? Because now I can't move the couch. It's going to be detrimental for me to do it. Uh, by the way, folks, I am milking that with Nancy as much as I possibly can. <laughs> Rich, can you bring in groceries? I don't know. They look kind of heavy. Can you help do dishes? That pot looks heavy. I'm going to milk it for a month, all right? Um, uh, several months ago, uh, day, when Dave was preaching through uh, Galatians uh, the book of Galatians, he came through Galatians chapter 6, and there's two uh, verses juxtaposed uh, just a few verses apart from each other that seem contradictory, but when you look at them, they mesh uh, perfectly. Uh, Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, says uh, we should bear one another's burdens. And then Galatians chapter 6, verse 5 says each one shall bear his own load. Okay? So verse 2 is talking about healthy rich, helping Ben move the couch, okay? Um, I'm sorry, verse 2 is talking about rich with cataract surgery, not being able to move the couch, and so it's a burden I need somebody else uh, to help me with. Verse 5 is moving a couch when you're healthy. Um, The Old Testament gives a perfect illustration of how to help people without enabling. It's called the practice of gleaning, 
And what it was is the uh, Old Testament farmers, uh, Israelite farmers, were commanded that when they harvested their field, they didn't pick up everything. They left the corners of their field uh, unharvested. Uh, If uh, something dropped, they would leave it there. And the idea was this is the way for the poor people in the community to come and have their needs met. Now, here's the deal. The food wasn't taken to them. The poor had to come and glean in the field. They became workers to meet their own needs. So it was a great way for farmers to be generous, right, because they could have harvested the corners of the field and got that income, but it was a great way for them to be generous and for the poor to keep their dignity because they are participants in meeting their own need. Um, Don't we have a tendency to treat people uh, we help as passive recipients of help instead of coming alongside them and becoming partners with them in meeting their need? You know, we can be so misguided as to think that it's actually more Christ-like, more Christian, to not allow people to participate in meeting their own need. Let me give you an example of this. A disabled person has a a group of folks coming over to clean up their house, and he he tells the leader of the group party, uh, listen, why don't I provide refreshments for everybody? I'll get drinks and sodas, and I'll make lunch and have refreshments. And the leader of the group, says, no, 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 that's okay. We've got a volunteer to do that. You just sit back and relax. So what just happened there? What just happened there is the person tried to participate, right? Tried to make this relationship reciprocal. It's like they were in a wheelchair and they, they started to stand up and started to take a step and they were pushed back in the wheelchair. and said, no, 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 we'll take care of this. So what's going to happen? Eventually, they're going to be mad that they have to stay in the wheelchair And the person pushing the wheelchair around is going to be angry and resentful that they don't get out of the wheelchair. But we push them back there, right? Let me give you some uh, practical examples of how to apply this principle as you seek to help loving clients. Uh, One way we do it, I mentioned it before, is our budget mentoring program, where when people have financial needs, we pair them with a budget mentor who helps them get on a budget and then save money. And what we do is we match their savings. So the money they save, we match that with a check to their landlord or grocery gift cards. But we're matching their efforts. Uh, Another thing we do, our standard procedure, is when people call in and they need home repairs or uh, car repairs, we say, great, uh, you buy the part or you buy the materials and we'll provide free labor. And uh, it's interesting. Some of the time in the conversation they'll say, well, I can't afford the part. And then what we'll say is, okay, great, well, call us back when you can't afford the part and we'll look for free labor. And you know what they normally say? Well, actually, I think I might be able to afford that part. You know, I think I might be able to come up with money somewhere. Uh, for instance, if you're called to uh, help uh, a client pack for a move, one of the things you might say is, great, you get the boxes together, and I'll come over, and I'll help you start packing, right? Because you're inviting them to be a participant in meeting their need. Uh, I'm going to ask the band to come up now. And um, here's my deal with you. In your bulletin, you've got this uh, purple sheet. And this gives all the details of how to be a loving volunteer from Neighborhood Bible Church. It's probably going to take me 10 minutes to read the small print, especially after eye surgery, maybe longer. So we can cut this sermon 10 minutes shorter if you'll agree that you'll read this. Okay? Agreed? We have a deal. All right. Uh, The second thing is that if, you've, uh, if you're filling out a, a paper talent survey, uh, Kat Atkinson is going to be standing at the back of the uh, sanctuary at the end of the service, and you can hand those in to her. 
Uh, those will be uh, put on the city, but uh, you can hand those to her, and we'll get those uh, uh, on the city and get you serving. Let's, uh, let's pray as we're dismissed. Father, people in need are devalued by the world, but of precious value to you. There is no organization that is better suited to help them than the church. Lord Jesus, it's an awesome responsibility to serve people who have been uh, requesting help from an organization called Love in the Name of Christ. And we can't possibly live up to that responsibility without your help, Holy Spirit. So strengthen us, empower us to serve. Help us to serve in such a way that we'll instill hope, dignity, and confidence in those we help. Let our acts of kindness, however small, give people a sense that you love them. It's a privilege to bring honor to your name by serving people in need. We ask all these things in the matchless name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.